Well, if you could open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. It was said that Prussian Emperor Frederick II had a counselor, and he would often ask questions of his counselor. And the Emperor Frederick was a rationalistic skeptic. He was an atheist. He was impatient. He was a man who wanted short, concise answers that he could comprehend simply and easily. One day, Frederick asked his counselor for a simple proof of the existence of God. How could he know that God was real with just one word? And Frederick's counselor answered, he could give the answer in one word. Israel, your majesty, the chaplain said, the people of Israel, the Jews. If you go forward to Mark Twain, and he was raised as a strict Calvinist, and later in life he became cynical and embittered, a critic of Christianity, he said this, and I quote him, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but one quarter of 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of. He's always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and obtruse learning are also way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. The Egyptian, the Babylonians, the Persians rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, and then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed, made a vast noise, and they were gone. The Jew saw them all, survived them all, and is now what he always was. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? End quote. The observation of Frederick's counselor and Mark Twain are alike in the following respect. There is something about Israel that defies human explanation. You see, the beginning of Israel was a miracle, the existence of Israel today is a miracle, and the future of Israel is guaranteed by the God of the Bible. And as we ponder God's miracle in the past, present, and future of Israel, it's only then that we can have a proper perspective even of the church in our age. Listen to me as I give a summary of the history of Israel since the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles began with the Assyrian deportation. Just briefly, just listen to, to the history of Israel. The Assyrians in 722 BC deported the 10 northern tribes of Israel. The Babylonians in 586 BC destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, slaughtered the Jews, and deported them to Babylon. In 437 BC, the Persian, wicked Persian minister Haman persuaded the king it would be beneficial it, it would be better and benefit the kingdom if he rid the nation of all the Jews. In 169 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the picture of the modern Antichrist, captured Jerusalem, defiled the temple. In 70 AD, after a long siege, Rome destroyed Jerusalem. In 135 AD, the Romans crushed the Bar Kokhba revolt. And going ahead, 1096, Pope Urban II proclaimed the first crusade to rid the Holy Land of Muslims. However, on their way to fight the Muslims, the Knights found Jewish settlements, and they massacred the Jews by the thousands. In 1371, Jews were massacred in, the, in Castile under the rule of Henry II. 
1479, Ferdinand and Isabella, they began the Inquisition. 300,000 Jews were thrown out of Spain. 1648, hundreds of thousands of Jews were massacred by the, by the Russian Cossacks. In 1600, the Jews were accused of spreading the plague of black death. In World War II, we have Hitler, who massacred more than six million Jews. And then we can fast forward today, 2023 to today. We have Hamas and the chanting of the Palestinians, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And just like all the other people, Haman and Hitler, they will never rest until the Jews are wiped out. It's very interesting. You know, when you look at that song, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, that's really a mockery against God. God said this in Genesis 15:18. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river. And it's repeated by Moses, where Moses says, from the river, from the river Euphrates, even as far as the western sea. That is in direct conflict with what God says. And you know what happened in 2 Kings? The king of Assyria came up and he mocked the God of Israel. His, his um, leader, Rabshakeh, said, who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their land from my hand? And you know what happened? God said this, whom have you reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have you raised your voice? against the Holy One of Israel. And then we see, he said, I will defend this city for my own sake. And it says that happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000. It's a serious thing to take Israel and his people to task. And the history of the Jews since Christ has been one long journey from graveyard to graveyard to graveyard. And the times of the Gentiles began because they left the God of their fathers, they turned to other gods, and they were scattered. In fact, even speaking of Jesus, their Messiah, they told Pilate, and all the people said, his blood shall be on us and our children. But the Jewish people were warned by God in advance. He says, I will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other end, and you shall serve other gods. The Lord promised them if they would forsake them, he would forsake them. And when you consider all the world empires and countries who have attempted to rid the world of the Jewish people, it's only by divine providence that they are still with us today. In fact, in my work with Jewish people, and I've spoken to people in the Holocaust, I've spoken to children of the Holocaust, I've been repeatedly told something like this. It goes like this, Paul, we're supposed to be the chosen ones, but look at all the troubles we've had. What does it, what's the point of being the chosen ones? And you can understand that, you know, from graveyard to graveyard. But at the same time, the current state of Israel is a testimony to the faithfulness of God. He warned them. He said, if you worship other gods, I'm going to scatter you. What's happening today is exactly what God told them. And, and, but he also has promises that he will bring them back, and one day there will be a nation that will recognize whom they've crucified. And so as we look at Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, we're going to see God's faithfulness, both in the past, the present, and the future. Just to get a perspective on Israel, Israel occupies only one-sixth of one percent of the land area that the Arabs possess. The Arab nations have all the oil, the wealth, worldwide influence. Israel's size is like a postage stamp, hardly discernible on a world map, but yet it faces so much, so much attention. 
so much attention. In fact, listen to this. God said that God identified the chosen people of destiny as the Jews. And God started the nation when they were nothing. In other words, God promised them they would be a nation before they were a nation. God told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation. Not only that, God promised to give his land to his chosen people. Never before has a nation been having land before they had a people in land. That was Israel. Thirdly, God promised that he would bring his people to the promised land. He made them a great nation in Egypt, and he brought them to the land to possess it. And then God promised to judge them if they forgot him. When the Jewish people entered the promised land, he warned them that if they practiced the idolatry and immorality of the land's previous inhabitants, then he would cut them out again. That's what we see today. So it's still a picture of the faithfulness of God. But God also promised to preserve his people, and he promised to bring them back into the promised land. And so we see that also through the Jewish people, that all through Genesis, that the seed line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we find the Messiah. Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. His mother was of David, and his father was David. Jesus inherited the legal right to be the Messiah through his father. He was born by the Holy Spirit, but he inherited the blood right through his mother. And thankfully, the importance of Israel in our church, we have a doctrinal statement and number 10, it says this, regarding the future. It says, we believe in the literal fulfillment of the prophecies which assure the future regeneration and restoration of Israel as a nation. In other words, we hold that Israel still has a place in God's work as a nation. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 33. He says, have you not observed what this people has spoken, the two families which the Lord chose? It says, it says this, thus they despise my people, no longer are they as a nation. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night stand not, and if the fixed patterns of heaven and earth have not been established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant. Basically, God says this, how long will he keep his promises for the nation of Israel? Not he won't keep it if you can take out all the stars in the sky, pull down the moon, and snuff out the sun. Not if you can count all the sand on the seashore. God was faithful to hold his promise to Israel. Psalm 94, the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Romans 11, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. There is much to be missed if you miss Israel. And there's vast groups of people, even in evangelical Christianity, that forsake Israel as a nation. Let me just read a quote by Erwin Lutzer in the book called Forsaking Israel. He says this, I have often wondered why the church for many centuries neglected teaching about the uniqueness of Israel and God's plan. Why didn't the early church fathers and later Augustine, for example, see the teaching of, about Israel as clearly as we might expect? And then he asked this, what hermeneutic blinded them to what seems so clear to many of us? One of the reasons why Israel is forsaken is because of hermeneutics. It's how you approach the Bible. When you adopt a allegorical interpretation of the future instead of a literal interpretation. Let me just give, uh, there's another way that Israel is forsaken, and that's simply by ignoring. You just don't talk about Israel. I'll give an example. When I was in Hungary teaching systematic theology, 
um, there was a professor in the Baptist seminary that also was a president of the union. And his students would show me his course on Christology. He never once mentioned the virgin birth. Wouldn't even talk about the virgin birth. And you wonder, where is he really at if you wouldn't say that Christ is born of a virgin? Well, it's one thing to ignore the virgin birth, and it's another thing to ignore Israel. I realize that. But what's happening today is that people are saying that if it's not essential, it's not important. Just last night as I was preparing for this, I got a call from a friend who's an elder in another church, and their pastor sent a letter to all the elders, and, he, and their church doctrinal statement says, we believe in the premillennial coming of Christ. And he wanted to drop that and change it and say, we believe when Christ comes back with his angels. Something so broad, you could put preterists, partial preterists, amillennialists, you could put everyone within that circle. And it's very interesting. What, what I see happening is that people tend to, they just ignore it. They don't want to talk about Christ. I've talked to several pastors in a friendly way, and I ask, why don't you say something more specific about Israel? And both, eventually, they say, well, if I'm specific about Israel, then I'm going to cause dissension in the church. I'm going to alienate someone that, that doesn't believe about Israel. And, and it's almost like, the church today has become like the world. When I grew up in high school, you'd have the honor society. If you got 4.0, you'd have an honor society. Now the schools say, well, that's not fair because what about the students that get C's? They're not in the honor society. And so they erase everything and they make everyone equal. Well, that's what we have in the church. People are saying if it's not an essential doctrine, then it doesn't matter what you believe. But here's the point. The Apostle Paul took a whole book, 2 Thessalonians, to clarify the order of what happens in the end time. They thought they were in the last days, they, in the day of the Lord, and they were afraid they missed the rapture. Paul took a whole book to clarify. Don't you remember that I told you? If it's important, the Apostle Paul, just because something might not be essential, it's still important. So I just mentioned that that is a trend that we see today. It is a trend that we see today. The other thing, and I say just by way of introduction, is when we talk about Israel and we look at the 70 weeks of Israel, this passage is the backbone of prophecy. When someone's in IT, when you say you lay a backbone, it's, it's the system, everything else it depends on it. When you properly understand this prophecy, you can fit all the pieces of Revelation, all the pieces of Thessalonians, all the pieces of the Olivet Discourse, it's consistent. One of the ways that you know if your interpretation of the Bible is, is reasonably correct is how consistent is it with the rest of Scripture. But people throw up their hands and they say, prophecy, <laughs> it's so complicated. In this passage, the angel, angel Gabriel comes to Daniel and he says, I want to give you insight with understanding. He says you are to know and discern, know and heed. We're, this passage we're looking at, we're commanded to understand it. Jesus, in Matthew 24, says when the abomination of desolation occurs, and then the, there's the Luke writes, let the reader understand. We are commanded to understand this. Don't throw up your hand and say, prophecy is so complicated, I can't, because we're commanded to, and there's a reason for, for prophecy. Um, so let's read with me, please, um, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, and, and we'll do our best to, to get into it. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city 
to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And when we look at this, and we can go to the, the, the second point, the meaning of weeks. And this prophecy, again, is the building block, the trellis, concerning Israel, and it's also the building block of all prophecy in the Bible. One of the first questions we need to look at is the context, the context. Look at what he says in verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city. We need to note this is primarily written to who are the people of Daniel, the Jewish people, Israel. What was the city? Jerusalem, the people of the Jews. So we need to establish the context. This is written about the history of Israel. The focus is Israel. Verse, verse 24 is really a summary verse. It's a summary of the rest of the passage. And then 25 to 27 says how verse 24 happens about. In verse 24, we have two groups of three. Two groups of three. The first group of three talks about finishing the transgression, making an end of sin, and making an atonement for iniquity. That refers in the first place to Christ when he first came. Christ came to make an atonement for iniquity. We see it happen then, but it will be fully realized still in the future. So primarily, Christ dealt with sin when he first came. Then we have the second group of three where he says bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. That points to the future. So it goes from Christ to the future. When will everlasting righteousness come in? When will seal up the vision and prophecy? God's program for Israel will be realized in the millennium. Anoint the most holy place. That will be in the millennium when we have a temple. Um, so again, it's pointing to the, the future of Israel. Their future will be realized in the millennium. Um, so verses 24 is a summary, and then verses 25 through 27 tell us how and when verse 24 will be accomplished. The first three were accomplished at Christ's first coming, this, and it will be fully realized at his second coming, but the last three will take place when he comes back and then going into the millennium. So verse 24 is a summary of history. But let's, let's look into where he says 70 weeks. It begins, the first two words are 70 weeks, and we need to define what is weeks. In the Hebrew word, the weeks, in English we have weeks, it literally means sevens. It literally means Literally, you could say 70 sevens, where it means seven units of seven. And where we say weeks, let me give you a parallel. When we say dozen, dozen means what? A group of 12. So you could say, well, 70 dozens would be 70 groups of 12. Here we have 70 
sevens, 70 groups of seven. That's why we say weeks. You follow that? So it's 70 groups of seven. Um, and literal, and so once we see 70 sevens, we need to know what does he mean? Sevens of what? Is it hours? Is it, is it days? What does it mean? And here we want to look, there's three reasons why these weeks mean years. He's talking about seven times 70 is 490. He's talking about 490 years. The first reason is, A, it's the chapter context. If you have your notes, it's a chapter context. Again, it's the context. What is happening here? In the beginning of chapter 9, look at this verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asuerus, the Median of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of Chaldeans, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which were revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Jeremiah said this, the whole land will be a desolation and horror. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Jeremiah 25, 12. When the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. Jeremiah 29, 10. When the 70 years are completed, I will bring you back. So here's Jeremiah. He's, I'm sorry, here's Daniel. He's reading Jeremiah, and he's counting the years. God says you'll be you'll be captive in, in Babylon for 70 years, and at the end of 70 years, I'll bring you back. So the context is what? Years, 70 years. And again, just to show you, um, I don't want to get you, you know, the chart is complicated with numbers, but numbers are important in the Bible. God said what? You will be 400 years in Egypt. <laughs> and, and it said God took them out 430 years to the day. Numbers are important, and there's, mean, there's meaning here. So Daniel's reading the chapter context. The first, the first thing is he's saying, he's saying that Jeremiah's prophecy means seven, seven years. But then we have another reason why it means years. We have the Jewish context, the Jewish concept of seven years. Listen to the Jewish calendar. The seventh day of the week is the Sabbath. The seventh week after Passover brings Pentecost. The seventh month brings the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. The seventh year is a sabbatical year. After seven sabbatical years comes the year of Jubilee. Their whole calendar is built on sevens. But the most important con context for us here is the concept of Jewish Sabbath rest. Listen to this in, in Leviticus 25. The Lord says this, six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its crop. But during the seventh year, the land should have a Sabbath rest, and you shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. So the Jews had a biblical mandate of seven years. The Sabbath rest was the rest for the land. And that isn't too um, hard to understand today. I have a uh, uh, brother-in-law and sister who are living in North Dakota, and even when I lived in North Dakota, farmers would do what you call summer fallow. They do it less today, but back then you would have, you would have your land, you would chisel plow it, you would destroy all the grass, and you would let it sit for a year. You wouldn't plant anything. The land, if it's clay, would absorb moisture. It would have a lot of moisture. The nutrients would break down. And when you planted your crop the next year, you would get a much higher yield than if you kept the crops going all the time. So the summer fallow is like somewhat of an equivalent to a Sabbath rest, only God's command as a purpose. It's not just for the crop. 
And so this, at the end of seven years, they had a, a year of jubilee. So Daniel's thinking, well, I'm in the seven-year captivity. You have the Jewish context of seven years, but then you have a historical context, a historical context. Second Chronicles, we see this. Those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon to fulfill the word of the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. One of the reasons God put them in Babylon for 70 years is because Israel violated God's command of Sabbath rest. In other words, in other words, the Sabbath rest happens once every 70 years, and Israel didn't keep this command for 490 years. So God says, okay, 490 years are, are, on your, are on your future. You haven't done this for 400 years, therefore I prescribe 490 years in the future. So summarize, Israel violated 70 Sabbaths, and they had to spend 70 years in captivity. They violated the land Sabbath rest for 490 years, so therefore 490 more years were determined upon its history. Um, so the point here, just to summarize it, the Lord is an exact God. He is in control. He's in control of this. Um, now, so when we see 70 weeks have been have been decreed that 70 years. Now, let's look at Daniel 9.25. When you, let me just give a parallel. When you say, I'm gonna to go to college for four years, well, you have to determine, when does that four years start? Are you gonna to go to college when you're 18 and then four years, or are you gonna start college when you're 21 and go four years? You need to know when the four years starts, and you need to know when the four years ends. So we wanna look, 70 years, when does the timetable start? When does it start? Look at verse 25. We have that marker. Well, before I get to that, notice, notice that he says, verse 25, so you are to know and discern. God is telling Daniel, you're to know this. You are to discern this. In fact, some of the translation, you're to know and heed it. You know, there's an assumption that, Daniel, you can understand this. You can understand this. And even Matthew 24, 15, which Matthew quotes this section, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. You and I are commanded to understand this in the scripture. And so we see, when does it start? He says this, so you're to know and discern that from, that's the start, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's when it starts, from, when the decree was issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. There's three possibilities. We know this happened in Ezra, twice, but the second decree of Artaxerxes happened in 445 BC in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter two. In this, we read this, Nehemiah chapter 2. It came about in the month Nisan, not the Japanese car. It came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. There you have the exact date. Da Daniel went before the king, and the king saw him, and he was sad. And the king says, why are you sad? And he says, well, my city, you know, is desolate. And he said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor, send me to Judah that I may rebuild it. And the king says, how long will your journey be and when we return? And it pleased the king to send me. 
And it says, and the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Extra biblical evidence, when you look at this month of Nisan, was very, was very clearly, it was in the 20th year, was 445 BC. In fact, because there was a day mentioned, we assume it's the first day of the month, that equivalent day is March 14th, 445 BC. And you can look at extra biblical evidence, it's an established date. So Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy starts when, when King Artaxerxes tells Daniel, you can go back to Jerusalem. Then once we need to know when you start, when you start college, okay, I'm gonna go to college when I'm 18, you wanna know when the four years ends. When does it end? Look what it says. From the issuing of decree, until, there you have the end marker. It says, until, until the Messiah, the Prince. So the, until the Messiah, the Prince, that means until Christ comes. Um, and then he has two subpoints. It says, until the Messiah, Prince, there will be seven weeks, which is 49 years, seven, it's 49 years, and then you'll have 62 weeks. And if you look on the chart, um, if you look on the chart on the back of your thing, you see this marker. So from the issuing of the decree until the Messiah, the prince, that period is broken up into 69 weeks. First, you have seven weeks. Then after the seven weeks, you have 62 weeks. You put the two together, 62 plus seven, you have 69. It's very interesting. It says here, seven weeks and 62 weeks, it says it will be built again, speaking of Jerusalem and the wall, with plaza and moat, even after even in times of distress. That accurately portrays what happened in Nehemiah. You read Nehemiah, it was a time of distress in rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. And, and so after 49 years, you can also look, the wall was finished, the wall was finished in 49 years, Jerusalem was finished, and also in those 49 years, we have the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Malachi was written. But then, after those, after those 49 years, it says, and there will be 62 weeks. That means, that means the seven years is then you have the 62 weeks. That happens at that point, that's the end of the, the, the period. At that very point, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Those, that was actually 483 years. So you have from 396 BC when Nehemiah went to the king, and you add those years up to when Jesus came on the donkey. It's, 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 it's amazing. Zechariah says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey. Zechariah chapter 9. Jesus, when Jesus came into, on Palm Sunday, we, we would say Palm Sunday, when he came into Jerusalem, he said this. It, he, he, the crowd said, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Luke 19, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. And then he says this, because they did not recognize him, they will level you to the ground and your children within you. They will not leave you in one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus came into Jerusalem exactly on those days, on the, on the end of, this, of the 69 week, he came in as their, as their Messiah on a donkey. Um, so let me summarize. The length of this entire prophecy is 70 weeks. At the end of 69 weeks, Jesus comes in on a donkey. And then, uh, and then what we have this. 
We have number four, when does the week pause? When does the week pause? Notice where it says in verse 26, then after the 62 weeks. Now remember that the 62 weeks was preceded by seven. So you, you, it's, when it says after the 62 weeks, it's really at the end of the 69 weeks. It says after that, af after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. What happened? Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey and one week later, he was crucified. That's exactly what happened. The Messiah was cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. So we see exactly that's what happened. The Messiah will die, he will be cut off. And then we see the people of the prince that, I think the best attribution is that calling Satan a prince. It wasn't Christ, and I'll, I'll say why. Um, and it says the end will come with a flood. Really, in the Hebrew, it means an overflowing. There will just be an overflowing problem, uh, difficulties there. And we see Titus the Roman destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then it says there will be war, desolations are determined. And that's what we see with the history of Israel right now. What happened since then? They've been scattered, and even as I told you the history, they go from one to another. That's exactly a summary of what Daniel says. That's what happens at the, the 69th week. Now I want you to notice something very important. It says, at, and at, it says in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, that's after the 69th week, the Messiah will be cut off. Verse 27, we have, we have the 70th week, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's the last week. You have 69, and so you have one left. That's 70. Now, notice that the 70th week does not start right away. You don't have 69 weeks, and all of a sudden, the 70th week starts. It's, let, me give a, let me give an example. It's like you have two teams that are uh, playing uh, baseball, and the umpire says, time out. And he says, time out, the team stop playing, and the teams can go and um, uh, talk, or they can, they can decide what they're gonna do, especially in football. In other words, God is regrouping. So what happens, to give you a picture, at the end of the 69th week, the clock stopped for Israel. This is for Israel. The time clock stopped, and God says, time out, I'm working with the church, the Gentiles. And, and because, again, what Ben has been preaching on in Romans, God turns to the Gentiles, and we see it's primarily, he's working with the church. Time out, it doesn't mean he's through with Israel, but he says, time out. And then when the clock starts again, in the 70th week, he's going to resume his program with Israel. And this, this, what I'm telling you, completely fits the book of Revelation and other things. Um, and, and so what happens, what happens is, is that um, this gap between the 69th week and the 70th week, that's consistent with other places in scripture. We just celebrated Christmas. What's one of the most, what's one of the most um, repeated uh, promises of, of Emmanuel with us? Remember Isaiah 9, 6? How does that go? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, right? That's Christmas. The very next phrase says what? The government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Well, when it says a son will be given to us, did the government rest on his shoulders when he was born? No, you have a gap. Christ came and then the government will rest on his shoulders when he comes back in the second uh, coming during the millennium when he sets up his earthly kingdom and he rules from Jerusalem, that's when the government will rest on his shoulders. You have a gap. 
It's very interesting. Even Jesus, remember when he went into the synagogue in Luke 4, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. And then he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Did you know he didn't read the next verse? So that's what Jesus did. He came, you know, he announced, you know, uh, proclaim release to the captives. He, he did many miracles. The very next verse says this, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to, to comfort all who mourn. Well, the second half talks about when the Messiah comes back. It's a day of vengeance. He, he left that out because that wasn't happening yet. You, so you have a gap. You know, Emmanuel, God with us, and when he comes back, the government will rest on his shoulders. So let me ask, um, let's go to the, the fifth one where it says, when does the week, the 70th week start and end? The week pauses, and that's the, the age of the church, but when does the 70th week start? Notice what it says in verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So God will... It's like the umpire. You say, timeout is over. The clock's going to start. The clock is going to start with what? With what? A firm covenant with one week. It's very interesting that you have here one week, which is seven years. If you look in the book of Revelation, just to give you an example, Revelation, and then he stops it in the middle, which is three and a half years. So you have three and a half years, and then you have the second three and a half years. Revelation eleven twelve says, it says that, uh, that they, the, they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. That's three and a half years. Revelation 13, 5, it says the Antichrist will give a, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and the authority to, authority to act for 42 months. So in the Bible, you see have the tribulation, the great, the tribulation starts a seven year seven years long. In the middle, the Antichrist takes his seat in the temple, and he proclaims himself to be gone and God, and that's, that's for three and a half years. So it's divided by two. And so when we see to the seventh, when we see the 70th week, the last week, that's consistent with the interpretation of the tribulation being seven years. But it will start when? He says he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. There'll be a peace treaty. There'll be a priest treaty. The amillennials say, well, that's Christ. The he will make a firm covenant. Christ didn't make a peace treaty for seven years. He did not fulfill this. The he, when you look at the he in verse 27, you look back to the nearest antecedent. And the nearest antecedent is what? Where it says, where it says that the people, um, uh, where it, where it says the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city. So it's basically the, the Antichrist who is part, who is, who is part of, uh, of the revived Roman Empire. Um, uh, the nearest antecedent is, is the people of the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come is, is Satan. Um, and so briefly, there's just one thing I just want to mention here. One thing that who is the he? He will make a firm covenant. That's the Antichrist. He will make a covenant with Israel for seven years. And that's also consistent when you look at the judgments in Revelation, when you begin with the seals. The first thing you see is a white horse. It says a white horse who's conquering, but there's no sword. How do you conquer with no sword? You make peace. So it's consistent with those judgments. Here you have someone saying, 
we're going to sign a peace treaty, and he'll basically be Israel's savior. You know that everyone wants peace, um, and it's it's interesting. It's not inconceivable this could happen. Even back in 2010, we had an administration then that proposed Israel relinquish the Jordan Valley to the Palestinians, and the Jewish state would lease back parts of the valley to the Palestinians for seven years. <laughs> And Prime Minister Benjamin Yadinahu liked the idea, but he wanted it to be longer than seven years. So I'm just saying, the seven years, you even find even possibilities, even, even in modern history, how it could be. But it's a false peace treaty because it only lasts three and a half years. He says what? In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. That means that eventually there has to be a temple. He's going to put a stop to that. And that's entirely consistent with what Paul says in Thessalonians. He says, let no one in any way deceive you. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's exactly what's happening here in Daniel. He'll put a stop to the sacrifice and and. That's exactly right. Jesus said this, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet. This is exactly what Daniel's saying. In the middle of the seven-year peace treaty, the Antichrist will, will, will say who he really is, and he will, he will uh, be the abomination of desolation. So, and then we see what happens. It will, it will come on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So here you have the desolator is made desolate. We see that's what will happen. When Christ comes back, he will throw Satan uh, and lock him up for a thousand years, and we see that will be his end at that point. So here we have 490 years decreed on the history of Israel. It's a rough example of picture of how prophecy fills in today but the question is what does it mean for you and i one of the things that we can say is that god is in control we need to be strengthened by the fact that god controls history nothing happens by chance you know uh, the world is not aimlessly looking at where they're going I remember when we were in Eastern Europe under communism, no one could have predicted that the, Eastern, that the wall would have fallen. Daniel says this in Daniel 4.35, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what hast thou done? And if God controls the larger picture, how much does he control the smaller picture? Remember last Sunday, we talked about how not two sparrows fall to the ground apart from your father's will, and you're much more valuable than two sparrows. Here we look at it in reverse. Look at the big picture. God is controlling the whole, the whole platform of the world. He's, he's orchestrating the Messiah coming. He has a plan for Israel, and if he's doing all that, he can surely, he can surely is in control of the events that happen in, in your life. And the third thing is that God's purpose is accomplished. God's purpose is accomplished. Isaiah 46 says, declaring the end from the beginning. <laughs> you know, or we can say the beginning and the end. God declared Israel, you're going to be a nation when they were no nation. And you have this plan for you. The Messiah is going to come for you. And even though you've rejected me, there will be a day when Israel will look upon him who's they've, who, whom they've um, pierced. They will realize it. 
The next one is that God keeps his word. How can we know the Bible's true? It's by prophecy. Prophecy. Look at the first coming. Everything was, was fulfilled literally. 30 pieces of silver. He was born in the town of Bethlehem. You don't allegorize Bethlehem. You don't allegorize 30 pieces of silver and say 30 pieces of aluminum to fit your thing. It's literal. And so when we look at the second coming, everything I'm saying to you is literal. You don't change your hermeneutic from literal to allegorical. It's, you want to be consistent through it. All consistent through it. And not only that, when, it, when we see that God keeps his word, Revelation 17, 17 says this, God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. You know, the last verse in Daniel says what? It, it says, um, it, it says um, a complete destruction, one that is decreed, Decreed, the Lord's in control. His, his decrees come to pass, and he accomplishes it through the actions of men. We get a glimpse of God's sovereignty. Uh, and, and another thing we can realize is that we're nearer to Christ's return than ever before. We are in the last days. We don't know when Christ will come back, but we need to be prepared. And that brings to a question, what can we do here that we can't do in heaven? One thing we can do is share the gospel. In heaven, we're not gonna be sharing the gospel. I mean, we need to be about Christ's work. Another thing we can learn is that prophecy has a purpose. You know, it makes us long for heaven and earth. And we see, you know, it's interesting when you read the news today, people are clamoring for a utopia, a utopia where their climate is under control, utopia where everyone is equal. And they think we can bring this about. But you know what? It's not gonna come about until Christ comes back. It's a, it's a, false, it's a false hope. We, we need to point out our hope is in Christ. He's our only hope. I mean, it's like communism. When I was in communist, they promised you move from the country to the city and you'll have your homes and everyone will share your goods, you'll all be equal. You know, the world is, is living on a false hope of utopia. The Bible says when Christ comes back, that's, that's, that's our hope. That's our hope. So realize that nothing, nothing at all happens by mistake. If you lose your job, if you get sick, it's not by mistake. Nothing can thwart God's ultimate plan. Nothing can. I mean, look at the day of the judges. You know, every man did what was right in their own eyes. God raised up a judge. You know, even Samson, when he was disobedient, God overruled his disobedience, and the temple fell upon, fell upon all their enemies. I'm just saying, when you understand that God is in control, it doesn't excuse our sin or excuse our disobedience, but it should cause us to, to honor him, to fear him, even in the passage that, Matthew re that Matt read this morning from Psalms. And also realize that our response should submit ourselves to God, that he is able to accomplish his purpose and, and that we need, to, we need to be a part of that. Job said this, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? We need to have an attitude of humble trust in the Lord and we need to walk by faith. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thanking you that you have a plan for the world. Through Israel, you brought the Messiah to this earth. He was born and was rose again after, after three days in the grave. 
Thank you that he's coming again. May our hope be fixed on him. And as our hope is on him, may you purify us. May we be willing to be your servants and, and to do your will in Christ's name. Amen.